I actually don't have a lot to say behind the scenes here. They were working on this episode alongside several of the other early batch, you know, filming at the same general time, you know, because they have the sets, sets and studios set up and blah, blah, blah. But this one was written by... I'm going to screw this up. Jacques Matons and uh, the, the Jacques Matons team. Uh, it's two people. And they've written a couple other episodes in Enterprise, including Acquisition, which, okay, and Dear Doctor. Now, one thing I do find interesting is this is directed by Terry Wendell. And you're probably thinking, okay, I don't think I've heard you say that name, Lore. And you're right, I don't think I've mentioned him all that much. He is a very technical director. In fact, one of the things he's good at is juggling a lot of difficult set pieces at the same time. Now, in my notes, I wrote down, that makes sense, because they had to do some pretty technical shots in order to do the ice plot. Because I remembered the ice plot. I didn't remember the T'Pol plot, or the fact that the ice plot is eh, maybe about eight minutes total of the entire episode. Everything in this episode is devoted to the T'Pol plot. Uh, that's not fair. Some of it is devoted to the Archer is Insane plot. But, so so we got three plots going on at the same time. But the only one that's technically challenging, that, that goes along Terry's strength, like Shattered or Lifeline, is the one that gets the least focus. But I bring that up as well because that is the part of this episode I remember the most, and it is the least interesting and least memorable part of the episode, having gone back through with analysis mode. But again... I haven't seen this show since 2001. So, I suppose my memories are not exactly flawless. The episode begins, and they've got these drawings from kids. Okay, that's actually really cool. I like that. What are those, exactly? Meanwhile, everyone who's watching is like, they're, they're drawings, Lord. It's a thing you do, you get a crayon. No, that's not what I'm asking. <laughs> Because there's only two possibilities here. Those are a fax, or science fiction equivalent, or somehow those were actually physically sent out to Earth's fastest ship, which also happens to be their most deep space ship right now. They're way out, is what I'm trying to say. And as of last episode, uh, sh uh, not Shadows of the Gem, um, the Andorian incident, they've been out for eight or nine weeks. I forget which, Paul says so. So... They're way out, is what I'm trying to say. So what are these? I'm going to assume they are a fax. That makes the most sense to me. But, well, that leads me to a bit of a problem with this episode, which I, I want to gloss over for right now, if that's okay. Just remember that. <clears throat> so, Comet shows up. Cool. I'm with it. And allow me to say that I really like the character focus of this episode. This episode is a more low-key episode, but it's the kind of Star Trek I just eat up. If it's not obvious, I actually really liked this one. This is easily my favorite episode so far, unlike the earlier, uh, you know, Brave New World or whatever it's called. Strange New World? I think it's Strange New World. Unlike Strange New World, which I had to fix tons of asterisks and ignore the first half of the episode, this is just a good episode throughout with... One fairly noticeable exception, which I have already referenced and we will get to later. So it's good to just see a, a, an honestly good episode. Holy crap. We've got our first one for the, PH, the VHS list. The PHS list? 
What is this, FF7? We've got our first one for the VHS list, which I guess doesn't apply the same, but since I uh, tend to rip Blu-rays anyways, and so I can keep a copy locally on my hard drive, this might be part of the rip list, which that sounds weird, doesn't it? Oh, I love this episode. I'll come up with a term. Maybe we could workshop it. I don't know. The uh, the keep list? The rewatch list? I mean, it's boring, but it's indicative. So, there's a message. Um, there's this nice little bit. Uh, the message is prepped. It's sent to her. She starts reading it. And then we cut to the the galley. Tucker's there, and he sees this pecan pie. Let me go ahead and say that I actually love pecan pie, but I've noticed in my 37 years, um, 38 by the time this video goes live, that it, there's a really big difference between good pecan pie and bad pecan pie. You know what I mean? Like, I bet several of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Supposedly, though, they've got this amazing chef who doesn't have a name other than Chef, and actually, I'm just going to spoil this for you now. We never see him, so that's our running gag for the show is Chef. But anyways, apparently he makes good stuff, so good pecan pie. Awesome. And you can see the way Tucker's just all over that. Now, he says, he, he he's talking to, to Paul. He's like, hey, you care to join me? He's like, no, thank you. He's like, okay. He doesn't really push the matter. He's actually quite polite to her. And then she sits down, still reading. And he just makes conversation. Yep, how's it going? And the, she, he comments, do you want a bite? Now, this is important because this is basically the crux of the episode in a nutshell. She says, it's sugar. It's mostly sugar. And he says, yeah, but it may not be good for the body, but it's good for the soul. And then he takes a bite and he says, ah, I feel better already. Remember that, okay? So... Remember that chemistry I mentioned? Well, it is really on display in this episode. I also think this is officially the episode in which I really started to like Tucker as a character because he does a really good job uh, in this one. With several, uh, granted, Trenier's awesome, but man. Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. So he then notices something's up with her and cares enough to ask about it. And she just is like, no, I'm going to go. I'm like, okay. Get some good rest. We find out later she doesn't sleep for two days. So, we find out that there's this comet. Now, we have a dilemma. One of the things I hate about Star Trek, hate's a strong word, one of the things I dislike about Star Trek and find just aggravating is the threat of the week. Talk about it all the time. I've talked about it in so many episodes of Star Trek. But the reason why is because the threat of the week is usually approached, even in good television, even in TNG, even in DS9, it's approached as a checkbox. We need to have a threat of the week. There's nothing wrong with having a dilemma to solve, an encounter to accomplish this week. But as any good DM will tell you, an encounter doesn't need to be a horde of goblins. There are plenty of things that you can try to solve. Maybe there's a caravan. Maybe there's a diplomatic envoy. Maybe there's a monster that's not necessarily hostile. Maybe there's a group of a race that doesn't speak your language, and they might be having something weird going on. Maybe there's just a strange, unexplained thing. Maybe there's a rock slide. There are tons of things that can form encounters, and I hate to talk about game design when it comes to storytelling, but I think the two are married in a very tight manner. 
because both are invo involved using creativity in order to draw interest and drama out of something that otherwise might be seen as mundane. To wit, we have a comet. This comet is something, and, and this is part of the reason I praise this episode, this comet has this new rare element. Okay, I don't like that, actually. They come up with this thing called Isilium. I looked it up. You know how many other things Isilium is in in Star Trek? Nothing. Now, I stress that because most of the time, if you look up something in Star Trek, it's referenced here and there. You know, this planet is referenced in such and such and this and that. Even the Axanar, who showed up in a previous episode, are mentioned several, several times in future episodes, including in TOS. But Isilium? Nothing. Super rare mineral that means absolutely nothing and nobody cares about it, apparently, because no one ever talks about it ever again. That, I feel, is a bit of a stumbling point. There's nothing wrong with a, a comet just being interesting for its own sake. Maybe there's... So there's this bit where Tucker mentions that the further you dig in, the more history you have. Maybe they could use this to scan down and find God knows what. Maybe information about the kind of areas it's passed through, or maybe the system that it's kind of orbiting, or maybe you might find that there's actually imprints of actual information from previous civilizations that left their mark here, and we have like... Just imagine if they dig down a bit, and as, as they're scanning, they find grooves that have been dug into the ice in a mathematical pattern. There's a lot of fascinating things you can do with that without having to rely on superarium. But, other than that minor complaint, we do have this fascinating topic, and they're like, okay, we've got to figure this out, and there's, it's 20 meters down, but we can't beam down because we can't beam into the caves of Terra Nova. Oh, wait, we could do that, even when we were a planet away, but we can't beam into this thing because, I mean, it, you can't beam through water. That's insanity. <sighs> Anyways... As usual, I think it would be better if the transporter just wasn't here. <clears throat> You'll notice they don't try to beam them out at the dilemma at the end either, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. And I don't want to talk ill about an episode I actually like. Then we see our first real look at Vulcan ships. We've seen a couple of things before now, but most of it's been pretty eh, like over in the motion picture, for example. But now we get to see an honest-to-goodness Vulcan ship. Cool. I actually kind of like the look of it. It doesn't seem very logical, but then again, neither does the jellyfish. So what the hell do I know? Although I guess Jordy built that one, but moving on. Cool looking ship. And we see Vanek, who lies and also sucks. I've said before, I've said many times, that it's actually very hard to portray a Vulcan. Because you're not emotionless. You're not flat, you're not boring. And that's how most people, including Vanek's actor, portray a Vulcan flat emotionless and boring. By contrast, I do want to give special praise to Jolene Blaylock, who does an excellent job of portraying a Vulcan this whole episode. And she goes up and down the emotional spectrum, as she should. Remember, Vulcans have emotions. They control them. They use logic and morality, that's actually important, in order to control and discipline themselves in order to rein themselves in so that at any given point in time they are speaking with a degree of confidence and assurity because they have already thought their way through everything in every way they're going to express themselves and how they're going to act. This is how you play a Vulcan. And Paul, Julian Blewock, does a great job of this, especially given that Vulcans are not perfect. They're not always in control. So what does a Vulcan do when they're not in control? Well, this happens. 
So, <clears throat> I mentioned uh, Lifeline earlier that Terry Wendell did. That was a very good character piece, too. And that's important to mention because this also happens to be a really good character piece. But I am once again getting ahead of myself. So they land in the comet, and there's this mystery transmission. And then we have probably the worst part of the episode, in my opinion. And that is the after-school special. So I, I praise the director, and both Tucker and Paul are awesome in this episode, really. And Reed and Travis are pretty awesome in this episode, too, for the five minutes they're on camera. I'm not sure I can act badly enough to get across my point, but when I say after-school special, like, what are you picturing right now? I don't even know if they do those anymore. They used to do those back when I was in school. They were dumb and boring and stupid, and they had that particular blend of awkward that was actually unpleasant to perceive. You know, that kind of, you know, hey, hey, we're going to do this, and it's going to be not rad. We've got to be cool by doing whatever it is we're pushing for this thing. Maybe it's drugs-related. That was a big one back when I was in school. Or maybe it's about sex. Or maybe it's about... I don't know, actually. I'm not sure I ever saw an after-school special that wasn't about sex or drugs. They could have just played some rock and roll. We would have gotten the gist. But no, no. The point is that they just have that kind of thing where they're laughing at these jokes that they're telling badly that aren't really funny. It's basically the opposite of charisma. Charisma is, is when someone knows how to present themselves, no matter what they're presenting. Charisma is when someone sits down with a phone book, and as they're going through... <clears throat> I'm just reading. I don't actually have a phone book in front of me. I got this thing, which I haven't been using because it has nothing about Enterprise, but, you know. By the time Harold Livingston had taken to writing in thy image, the working relationship between he and Gene Roddenberry had begun to disintegrate. Badly. I don't remember when I began to pierce the Roddenberry myth, Livingston says, but he and I suddenly started to have creative differences. I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't have an ounce of charisma. But you do know what I'm talking about. Someone who really does have charisma. What the heck is in my name? Whatever. Someone who actually does have charisma can pull that off. Thus, the opposite of charisma is even when they're saying something really interesting, you're just sitting here going... The whole time, right? Okay, come on. And I mention that because this is an awesome idea that I wish we saw more of. A letter to home. A message to a class back at home. Now, there's a lot that can be done about this. My mind is exploding with possibilities. First and foremost, it's a good way to ground things. How often did you see that kind of stuff in TNG or DS9? It showed up every now and again. We can't, of course, forget Picard Day. But it's a nice way to once again anchor this closer to modern day. To make this feel a little bit more believable and keep that tonality thing going. Which is, of course, then immediately destroyed because they have replicators and universal translators. I wish they had neither, to be completely blunt. Yes, I know. They've had some kind of resequencing thing ever since TOS. I, I, I know. And but the problem is that what they describe in this episode is basically TNG-era tech with what I like to call super recycling. You know, you throw matter into the vat, and it sequences it down into base molecules, which are then resequenced into whatever they need. 
that is super recycling, extremely useful, and once I invented in real life in September, what we're going to have is we're going to have basically solved most of the resource problems of the planet. That very tech is one of the three major pillars of why Earth, just Earth, is a post-scarcity society in the future, not here. So, so forgive me for going off about this point, but it, it's kind of against the world building. And, of course, they have a universal translator, which sucks because, honestly, I'd rather they just not have anything. Maybe like a, a computer uh, program that she can reference, but Hoshi should be the translator. That's kind of her shtick. That's why she's on the ship, right? <sighs> Ignoring those two things and Archer's anti-charisma, which is awkward and embarrassing to watch, I do love this sequence. Or at least the idea of it. You can have a grounding. You can have character bits. You can have world building and exposition smoothly slotted into the episode. And they do actually use this for world building. Um, you know, they, they, she talks about the universal translator. And the way he talks about the nature of recycling is actually fascinating to listen to. Now, I'm a boring geek, so I suppose that's just my perspective there. But... Again, Tucker does a good job of making it sound interesting, whether you're interested in it or not. He is actually charismatic. I'm starting to think Scott Bakula's not that good of an actor. I don't know. We'll see as we're going through. We'll see. I'm just getting more and more weirded out by this, but moving on. It's okay. Great men are not peacemakers. Sorry. Sorry. So I don't know why that just popped into my head. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Anyways... <clears throat> So he talks about it. And the idea of plumbing and recycling, it is a legitimately valid question, which I, I love that. And then there's the fact that Tucker treats it like it's an insult, like they're just going to think I'm the, the sanitation engineer. Do I have to deal with the poop question? Now, first of all, yeah, of course, kids are going to be like, ha-ha, poop. But second of all, anybody who's actually interested in this is going to find this actually fascinating. Anyone who has any kind of a working brain will tell you good plumbing is basically mandatory to any kind of modern civilization. Not just getting rid of waste, but producing new, clean water is a huge undertaking and extremely vital. Now, that's right here, right now, in an apartment. Think about in a spaceship. I can't go outside in a spaceship in a, in a crutch situation with a bin and capture rainwater and filter it with my clothes. In space, you really need that extra work in the plumbing. It is extremely vital and kind of awesome to listen to. Then, just because, you know, that's because the episode's got to keep crapping on something I actually like, pun intended... Someone asks about germs, and Phlox jumps up and, once again, is charismatic. I, 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 like I said, I'm starting to like Phlox more and more every episode. I really am. He jumps up. He's like, yes, yes, I can't wait to tell you about the germ, and it's awesome, and it does this. And there's that enthusiasm, which can also serve either as a form of charisma or as a replacement for charisma. Someone who's really into something can really help tell you about it in a way that otherwise might not be interesting because they're into it. And it comes across. 
because they're like, oh my God, it's cool and this and, 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 and sometimes it'll do this thing and I can't believe it and sometimes it works this way and there's this one, oh God. And the episode keeps cutting away to people, well, cutting away to Archer who keeps just painting like, okay, this is boring and dumb, come on, flocks. Then he cuts flocks off and cuts off the show. I wanted to slug him. I did. Just one, right in the face. It's okay, that will not be the last time this episode I want to slug him. It'll happen twice more. <sighs> so, three times! I forgot about this! So, it cuts to this awesome thing where they're making a snowman. Now, they actually are doing their job. Uh, you know, t uh, Reed is walking around doing the scans. He talks about the history thing I mentioned. They're setting up the drill and the explosives. And while they've been working... Travis has been working on a snowman. I really like that. It's probably one of the most just completely off, you know, just random, sweet little character moments, which is then interrupted by Archer calling in and scolding them. There's slug number two. All right. <clears throat> I have to be careful about slugging like this because my boom holding my mic is like right here. You can't see it, obviously, but it is right here. So if I was to finish that arc, it would get very loud very quickly. Uh, so then Hoshi uh, decodes the thing. It doesn't translate it, because why would she do that? It's not like she knows anything about languages. Um, but then Tucker reads it. This is when the episode really finds its stride. This is when it really becomes down just to, to, to two people and their interactions with each other. Because Tucker reads it, and he's just like, Oh. And Tucker really feels bad about it. He is just beating himself up over this. Oh, my God. Like, he gets all angry about it. God, why didn't she just send it through the regular channels and mark it personal? This wouldn't have happened. And got the freaking stupid... Damn it! <laughs> you know? He's obviously really bothered by having violated her privacy. I like that a lot. Even Archer is upset by this. Archer put him on this because... Um, He's specious. <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying it. The longer keeps being true. He is very anti-Vulcan. So he put him on this because, oh, how dare she. And even Archer is like, oh, oh, wow. Oh, geez, I'm sorry. This then leads to Tucker going and trying to meander an apology. He is so embarrassed about this that he can't even bring himself to really mention it. Now, credit where credit is due. He doesn't talk about the contents of the letter. Point in fact, we don't find it until uh, 13 minutes are left in the episode. I checked the timestamp. That's how far in we finally get a hint of what's going on, and we finally find out what the contents of the letter are. Now, that's important, because up until now, and given something that's about to happen, what is going on is that Archer's being a dick, as we'll discuss in just a minute, and someone violated her privacy. And that's all we need to know. It bothers her, and it clearly bothers her. And this is, again, where I give credit to Miss Blaylock, because she does a really good job of portraying a Vulcan who is upset and trying to control that, that kind of restrained thing. Is there anything else that you would like to do? Maybe you would like to read the rest of the letters in my quarters. Just the, there's that undercurrent of restrained anger. Beautifully Vulcan. <clears throat> Then Archer interrupts the apology that he knew Tucker was going to do in order to demand that she help him get rid of Vanek. Because 
slug number three. I'm not even going to do the motion at this point. I want to stress this, by the way. He says, I'm going to reach out and do dinner, you know, blah, blah, blah. But he says flat out, this is to try and make him go away. And his final line of the scene is, and I wrote it down, just help me make him go away. What is wrong with you, Archer? Well, we know what's wrong with him. The problem here, and I've, I've been developing a theory, and I'm going to say this out loud in case I'm wrong. I have a theory that Archer is Janeway, and in so doing, it didn't really occur to anyone that the Vulcans were okay. In other words, because Janeway is right, Archer is right about the Vulcans, and they are actually dicks who are actually spying, who are not actually worthy of trust. They are effectively becoming the antagonists. And then future events happen later on in the show, and the entire creative staff gets jumbled around, and people look at that and say, well, that's stupid, and decide to take that in a new direction, which leads to the Vulcan arc of Season 4. In short, I think this is a form of backloaded storytelling that is deliberately trying to fix a flaw in early storytelling. Now, I know with total certainty at least one person, and only one person, who uh, thinks the Vulcans are completely fine in Season 1. Allow me to personally disagree with that statement. I think the Vulcans are actually being mistreated and misrepresented, mostly because of the, f the way they are being represented through Archer. Now, that is just my opinion, and as always, I'm curious of your thoughts on this. But I bring this up now because I have seen nothing to indicate that the show is trying to make Archer out to be, let's call it what it is, the villain here, in intentionally. He is Everything I keep talking about, him being specious and him being antagonistic and horrible, feels like it's just a byproduct of the way they were slanting the character, not an actual in-character point. I hope I'm, I'm making my point correctly here. In short, this is bad writing, not good. Let me just go ahead and say that bluntly. This is an accident. I am giving the, the episodes credit because of an undercurrent, which is presumed. And, I hate to point this out, but that is Janeway, too. One of the biggest undercurrents to her character was invented by Kate Mulgrew not by the writers, and she put that into her acting, and I interpreted that out of her acting, and then years later, when I was researching Voyager for the Ruminations, I found out about her doing that, and thus I was vindicated in why I was thinking that. But that is still effectively headcanon, even if it's in the headcanon of the actor. The same thing applies to Ducat in many different ways over on Deep Space Nine, because the actor just had a fundamentally different interpretation of the character than the writers did. So you see why this is kind of a gray area. I know Laura Loaded will never watch this because he's a handsome, wonderful, incredible man, which I just can't wait to have tons and tons of tantric sexes. Sex with... I couldn't even get through the joke. But um, if he is watching this, I'm sure he will then jump in to bring up Death of the Author. But as I've always said, I don't believe Death of the Author, for or against, is an absolute. I think we need to kind of dance around this topic in order to try and, on a case-by-case -case basis, examine how much we weight towards one side or the other. Thus... I proffer my opinion. I think that the writers wanted him to be um, right. I think they wanted him to be Janeway. I'm just going to say it bluntly. I've said it so many times. And they didn't really think that through all that well, so they had to give him someone to butt his head against and prove that he was right 
because you can't be right in this in this manner that they are employing here unless there is someone else who is wrong and the Vulcans just kind of keep being the wrongs because he's already got a predisposed history with them and thus my interpretation of the specious idiot who is in over his head who shouldn't be captain and is arguably making things worse is completely headcanon we'll see as we go further on either way Sorry for going off on a tangent there, but I felt like this is a really good example because not only does he, he is really, really antagonistically rude here, and he will be so again in a future scene, during the dinner scene, but later on he is willing to risk Travis and Reed's lives because of how much he doesn't want to reach out to the Vulcans. Anyways. Thankfully, this is not an Archer episode. This is a T'Pol episode, and that, I think that's very much to the benefit of the episode, which leads me to a couple of interesting scenes. So first, T'Pol goes down to sickbay to talk to Phlox. He's like, all right, what the hell? And he says, oh, it's a tension headache. And she says, oh, yeah, it's because I haven't been sleeping for two days. Do note that as of this point, we don't know the contents of the letter still. As of now... The pressure from Archer and the fact that her privacy has been invaded unintentionally could be, by itself, sufficient cause for her to be all upset about this. I just want to point that out because the episode really does a really good job of saving what the letter's about until very late, and Tucker and T'Pol both do an excellent job of not doing as you know. In fact, the way they finally exposit the contents of the letter, two scenes from now, is actually excellent, very natural, very in character. So huge credit to the writing team for once in Enterprise. Then we have the dinner scene. Archer is barely holding back his contempt and pretty much in an aggravated manner tries to get Vanek to either talk or send or just something. And he, he just gets worse as the, as the dinner goes along. This is the uh, next punching, punching Arthur thing. But I do want to say one thing. The after-school special earlier was awkward and embarrassing. I didn't want to sit through it. It was just kind of unpleasant. This is awkward and embarrassing. You notice I left off that last bit. This is why I find it so difficult to describe certain elements of fiction. Like, take a horror film. Oh my god, that's so horrible! So you didn't like it? No, I loved it! Now take a, a schlock horror film. Oh my god, that was so horrible! So you loved it? No, it was terrible! You see why language kind of falls apart when you're describing something that is basically deliberately bad in a manner that is designed to be good. You know, this is the roller coaster ideology. It boiled down to a nutshell. So, what we have is deliberate and intentional awkward embarrassment, but because it's actually being done on purpose and is well presented, it works much better. The absence of music, the slight noises, the crunching as he's going through his food, the fact that Archer just kind of starts to lose more and more of his composure as the dinner goes on, and Vanek just sits there being a condescending jerk. Not as bad as I remembered, but still a jerk. And the two of them are just kind of at each other, pretty much consistently throughout the whole, the whole dinner, because both of them kind of dislike the other and are barely tolerating the other for the sake of diplomatic, uh, you know, presentation or whatever, you know, requirements. You gotta put on the face. Fine, I'll go to your dinner. I'm not gonna eat anything or drink anything, but I'm gonna go to your dinner, because you required me to. 
And Archer's like, okay, I'm going to be nice to you because I'm required to, but could you just please leave because I can't stand you. And meanwhile, the other guy's like, God, I can't wait to get away from this guy because I can't stand him. And seeing those two metaphorically butt heads, that was well done. So this, like I said, good, bad, embarrassing language. Which leads me to the best scene in the entire episode. Thirteen minutes left in. We finally find out the, the, the details of that letter. It's about an arranged marriage for T'Pol and some guy, I think it's called Voss? Voss? Toss? Something like that. He's actually going to come up in the future. This is actually part of a subplot of all of the things that Enterprise didn't learn from Voyager or Enterprise, or excuse me, TNG. I am glad that they learned how to do sub-arcs. Voyager kind of played with that in season two, if you'll remember that, with the uh, with the Kazon and Tom Paris and Seska. You remember that little side arc? But that was weird <laughs> and not super well done. And by contrast, several of the sub-arcs that we'll be going through early Enterprise, well, we'll see, won't we? Because we've only just started two of them. This is one of them. Her... Uh, her uh, betrothal, that's it, her betrothal to this guy. Now, once again, that chemistry between Trenere and Blaylock is incredible. The two act off of each other beautifully and brilliantly, and the character, it, it's just a wonderful character. It's the kind of thing I absolutely gush about in general, but especially when it comes to Star Trek. This is the kind of stuff that really gets me in Star Trek, these kind of character moments. Um... They, I don't actually have much to say about it other than how awesome it is, but I do have a couple of specific points. Point number one. T'Pol almost casually mentions something that, that really caught my attention. It's just part of the conversation, and they don't even stop to really address the point. But uh, when she suggested kind of putting off the arranged marriage, the other family was insulted at the idea that I would want to put off my adherence to tradition for the sake of staying on a human ship. This is the kind of thing that will be taken further in Season 4. The idea that the Vulcans really, really, really do look down their nose at humans, at least culturally, not individually, but culturally they do. Culturally they really do feel themselves as superior, and this kind of idea is just presented in several of these things. There's also the fact that T'Pol constantly keeps saying, your advice. And then each time she asks Tucker for the advice, she gets a little bit more aggravated. Because Tucker's trying to do the best he can. He is, in short, trying to be a good friend, and has no idea how to do that. He doesn't really know Vulcan culture, and he doesn't really know her. And so what happens is he's just bouncing up against the walls she keeps throwing up. But he keeps trying. And what I really love is you can tell that she is arguing with herself the whole time, but because Phlox said, you know, maybe you should talk to someone about it, maybe that'll make you feel better, she is approaching this like it's an equation. Okay, I just plug these variables in and I'll get a result. The result here being the advice. Your advice. Your advice, please. I feel upset and irritated and frustrated because I don't want to do this, but I don't get to choose because I am in a 30 go to 10 right now. And it just, she doesn't even have to say it. And that's again why it's so good. Her performance and how she talks with Tucker gets across how much she's stuck in this feedback loop of arguing with herself about what she wants, about what she would choose given the choice, 
and about what she must do. Because Vulcan society, especially at this point in history, is very much about adherence to tradition. I wrote down the line, our, our commitment to tradition outweighs personal choice. And she says that, and she just obviously is not really fully in favor of that, and wants to push against this. Tucker even says that outright towards the end. Maybe your subconscious is pushing this. She says, I, that would imply my subconscious is in control of me, which it is not. Uh, well, yeah, that's a human bad habit. He even calls it a bad habit, but maybe you picked it up. I really like this scene. It's good stuff. Now, I have some notes in my notes that I scribbled out. Nine minutes until the end of the episode, the asteroid plot, or excuse me, the comet plot, suddenly comes back in, and oh no, they fell. <sighs> Real quick, just just because it bugs me, uh, this this sucker is eighty-two point six clicks in width. That is a very small comet, which probably generates next to no gravity. So falling, Travis falling hard enough to injure his leg is not happening. The shuttle falling in far enough to get wedged in there is extremely not happening. Just wanted to comment on that, because it's stupid. Moving on. So, they fall in. Okay. And then the shuttle plummets in. Okay. And the reason I was so upset about this by memory was because, ugh, because it's just another action sequence. you got to have an action sequence in the final act. This is so dumb. And that was what I was thinking, and that's what I wrote down. I scratched that out because as I was sitting here watching the episode, I was challenging myself to do better. Because, again, I'm down with action. And what I would do then, like, you know, I asked myself, okay, Laura, what would you do? And it's like, well, I'd make the action relevant to the character stuff or relevant to the setting building. I'd basically make it match, <laughs> make it be a part of the theme or the character or the tone or whatever that the episode is about or the arc is about. So I started sitting here thinking about how I would make that relevant to Paul and her choice. And then the episode actually did that for me, which I completely forgot, because she gets up and gives a speech, a good speech, to Archer, who gets his final slug of the episode, wham, because he is willing to let Reed and Travis die because of his stubborn pride and stupidness. <laughs> this is probably one of the only times he's actually wrong, by the way. But that's because this is a T'Pol episode. She is the one who comes to the conclusion you are human. You are free to choose. He looks at her weird, but Tucker kind of gives like a, okay. Because this is about a realization for her. Because remember, part of the problem for her is what I've already talked about. Pride. The exact same thing she accuses Archer of. Remember, that is a bit of a Vulcan thing. And it is definitely a T'Pol thing. She absolutely has pride, just like Spock did. Just like Tuvok did, if we want to use that example. So, she, in talking to him, realizes the reality that that pride can bend or be broken in an effort to try and accomplish something that, though intangible, will otherwise alter how things go. Now, that sounds like a really weird way to talk about this. So let me do this in a different manner. At the end of the episode, she sits there with the pecan pie. Remember that? Because... The pecan pie has no nutritional value, but 
makes you feel better. That's brilliant episode. I like that. Because her doing the illogical thing, reaching out to Tucker, which she didn't even want to do. She only did that under advice from the doctor. And trying for the pragmatic, logical solution basically failed. She just kept running into a wall over and over. The same walls she was throwing up in between her and Tucker. It's when she accepted the possibility of the illogical solution, the intangible solution, that she realized that it could actually help her feel better. And she does seem substantially more at peace. And by the way, that's good acting right there. So special praise to Blaylock again. Because it takes a lot to have no expression and look like you're barely restraining your anger and to have no expression and to look like you're serene and at peace. It's, it's about how you use your eyes. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that right now. I'd have to really think about it to do it, and I think I'm too small here for you to really see. But they use the close-up, so you can kind of get the inference there. And she is substantially more at peace because, well, it was good for her soul, right? <laughs> Made her feel better. And she obviously has now chosen... This will also, the final thing that really makes me like this is this will come up in the future. And this is basically the beginning of the connection between Tucker and Paul. We really saw the beginning of that in Strange New World, but that was kind of a... <laughs> that, was, that was laying the sand down, as, I, as I've used in a recent TOS video. This is now actually putting down some bricks. I like this episode quite a lot. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts about a good episode. I can't wait to see the comment section. Oh my god, I can't believe he likes this episode. What is wrong with him? I'll see you next time, guys.